Hello and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today's podcast will begin our coverage of Woodrow Wilson, which we will probably need to break up into two or three podcasts depending upon how quickly Gene Ann can speak. Before I turn it over to Gene, we are nearing the holiday season and I would be remiss if I didn't remind our listeners to take a look at my book, The Naughty List. It's a Christmas-themed romantic comedy about two people who have been independently working with Santa Claus to get people off of the naughty list, and then Santa puts them on a path to intersect. This was published last year, but maybe it'll put you in the mood for the holidays. That would be The Naughty List by Jimmy LaSalle. And now on to Woodrow Wilson with our favorite history teacher, Jeannie Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. So today we're going to be talking about Woodrow Wilson, his early life and the start of his presidency. Now, this is a man, a former president whose legacy is often not fully discussed or even taught. You know, a lot of times when people discuss Woodrow Wilson and his presidency, they speak of him within the context of World War One and being this protector of democracy creator of the League of Nations. But the fact is that there's a lot more to Woodrow Wilson than people realize. And I'm hoping that this podcast can shed light on that a bit. Throughout the next few episodes, we're going to be joined by a number of different guests, some from the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Museum and Library, and some from Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, D.C., which was the home that he lived in after his presidency and before he died. So let's get started. Woodrow Wilson is a man and president whose policies and beliefs leave him with a troubled legacy, for sure. He fits into the category of former president who did some great things, and he also did some terrible things uncomfortable conversations and discussing the full picture of historical figures is essential. I think it is safe to say that his early life and upbringing helped to shape his ideals and beliefs, which of course, when he became president of the United States, shaped his policies, both domestic and foreign. In this particular episode, we're going to be discussing mostly uh, mostly domestic policies. Thomas Woodrow Wilson was born on December 28, 1856, in Virginia. His father, Joseph, was a Presbyterian minister and a founder of the Southern Presbyterian Church. When he was two, his family moved from Virginia to Augusta, Georgia. Woodrow Wilson grew up with enslaved persons working in his home. The Wilsons didn't own slaves. They were instead leased by the church where his father was pastor. Now, please don't mistake me mentioning the fact of them leasing slaves or enslaved persons as opposed to owning enslaved persons as somehow being better. This is a family that is still utilizing enslaved labor. His father defended slavery because it existed in the Bible. That argument, you know, because it existed in the Bible, that argument in support of slavery was a common one. During the Civil War, both of his parents sided with the Confederacy. His father's church was used to care for wounded soldiers, and he was a chaplain for the Confederacy. During the Civil War, Augusta, Georgia, where they lived, was really a manufacturing hub. The city produced cotton, food, and gunpowder. 
when people think of Georgia and the Civil War, they often think of Sherman's march to the sea. The city of Augusta did prepare fortifications, but General Sherman never marched through the town. Wilson spent 13 years living in Augusta. He was five when the Civil War began and nine when it ended. He witnessed Confederate President Jefferson Davis being marched through the streets of Georgia after his capture when he was en route to Fort Monroe, where he was held until his trial began. But that was a trial that would never come. If you listened to our podcasts on the Civil War, we discussed that. So you can imagine the extent through which living in the South through the Civil War and Reconstruction had on Woodrow Wilson, especially during such formative years. The Wilsons moved often. In 1870, they moved to Columbia, South Carolina, and his former home is now a museum dedicated to the Reconstruction era. The family then moved to North Carolina four years later. Woodrow Wilson is the only one of our presidents to have a Ph.D. His education didn't always come easy. It is believed he was dyslexic and he didn't learn to read until the age of 10. At the age of 16, he started at Davidson College, a Presbyterian liberal arts college located in North Carolina. After his freshman year, he became sick and he had to take a year off. He wouldn't return to Davidson. Instead, he would enroll in the College of New Jersey, which would eventually be renamed Princeton University after the town it was located in. Well, is located and still still there. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree and briefly went to study law at the University of Virginia. He disliked it, and so he left. Instead, he enrolled in Johns Hopkins University and received his Ph.D. in political science. While he was there, he also wrote a book called Congressional Government, where he analyzed the American political system. It was the writing of that book that earned him his Ph.D. He would author a number of books, including a biography of George Washington and many of his speeches and even love letters to his second wife have been printed into books. I'll get into another one of his books a little later on when we talk about Wilson and his views on race. So he earns his Ph.D. and he goes on to teach at a college called Bryn Mawr College for Women. He taught history and politics there for three years. He was not a supporter of education for women. And in a letter he wrote about teaching there, he said the following, and this is a direct quote, lecturing to young women of the present generation on the history and principles of politics is about as appropriate and profitable as would be lecturing to stonemasons on the evolution of fashion in dress, end quote. His next teaching job was at Wesleyan University, which at the time was an all-male university. Then he goes to Princeton, which most people know him for. He started teaching at Princeton, and he was one of the most popular professors there. He was made president of Princeton in 1902, and he quickly set out to improve the school. Woodrow Wilson was president of Princeton University from 1902 until 1910. He instituted more rigorous standards, 
Many of the changes he made at Princeton helped to elevate the school to one of the most elite universities in the United States. It is also important to note that unlike its rivals, namely Harvard and Yale, Princeton under Wilson's helm did not accept any black students. When a black student from Virginia wrote directly to Wilson himself, Wilson replied the following, and this is a direct quote. It is altogether inadvisable for a colored man to enter Princeton. His long tenure at Princeton and his reputation as a reformer made him a bit of a local celebrity. Leaders of the Democratic Party in New Jersey looked at him as a solid candidate for governor, even though he had no prior political experience. Democratic political machine party bosses helped Wilson get elected, but he would not be their puppet. New Jersey was incredibly corrupt, just as New York and many other major cities throughout the country were corrupt, which we talked about during our Gilded Age and the Progressive Era podcast episodes. As governor of New Jersey, he cleaned up the corruption. Laws were passed that required you know, primary elections and significantly reduced the power and clout political machines had in the state. After just two years as governor, he starts to get attention in the world of politics, in the world of politics, but at this time on a national scale, and people begin eyeing him as a possible presidential candidate. He ticked a number of important boxes for the Democrats. He's got a reputation as a reformer. He's an academic. He's a great speaker, a Southerner, a Southerner who has lived in the North for some time now. It took a number of ballots for him to get the Democratic nomination, but he gets it. Now, I do want to talk a bit about Woodrow Wilson and race, and I'm going to get into this a little bit later, too, in the next two episodes. But Woodrow Wilson writes a five-volume history textbook, and it's called A History of the American People. And within this five-volume history textbook, he praises the Confederacy, and he called the Ku Klux Klan or the KKK an invisible empire of the South. Quotes from that textbook were used in the controversial film called Birth of a Nation. The film, which was based on the book, The Klansman, was written by a friend and former classmate of Wilson's. And Wilson held a private screening of the film at the White House during his first term. So it's important to understand that concept. So here's a man, he's a Southerner, he's lived in the, you know, in the North for some time, but his views on race are very particular. And it will be important to kind of keep that in mind as we discuss him. He gets a nomination. The election of 1912 was the first presidential election to use primaries. Wilson is the first Southerner elected president since 1848. No Democrat had been president since Grover Cleveland. And if you remember, he's the one guy who served two non-consecutive terms. 
the election saw four candidates run for president. You have incumbent William Howard Taft, who, by all accounts, hated being president. He agrees to run for reelection mainly because he sees a non-consecutive third term for Teddy Roosevelt and even the potential election of Wilson and obviously the very long shot win by Eugene V. Debs as a threat to the Constitution. So he runs not because he really wants to, but because he feels he has to in order to protect the Constitution. For Americans who want progressive reform, they see Taft as a steward of the old guard. Eugene V. Debs is a socialist, and he believes that it is the working class that should be running the country. In the middle, but still reformers, you have former President Teddy Roosevelt, who, after being denied the Republican Party's nomination, he and his supporters start their own political party called the Progressive Party. But that party is also commonly referred to as the Bull Moose Party. Roosevelt campaigned hard. He wanted to return to the White House. An assassination attempt where he was shot and bleeding couldn't even stop him from going to make his scheduled speech. Naturally, you know, opening his jacket to show his bloody shirt to the stunned crowd, always and ever the showman. With Republicans Taft and Roosevelt both running, they split the Republican Party. While Woodrow Wilson doesn't win an overwhelming majority of votes, he wins more than the other three candidates and is elected president. During the campaign, and these are quotes from his speeches and his words that I'm using, not mine, he promised to deal fairly and justly with the Negro to provide not mere grudging justice, but justice executed with liberality and cordial good feeling, which earned the endorsement of prominent black leaders, including Niagara Movement founder W.E.B. Du Bois and Boston journalist William Monroe Trotter. These would not be promises he would keep. Wilson believed in predestination, the notion that life was predestined by God. After being elected president, he stated the following to the head of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. And this is a direct quote. I wish to be clearly understood that I owe you nothing. Remember that God ordained that I should be the next president of the United States. Neither you or any other mortal could have prevented that. So take that head of the DNC You can also understand why he felt it okay to go after the party bosses in New Jersey when he was governor. He believed in predestination. Imagine any politician saying that to either head of a political party today. Probably would not go over very well. I want to talk about Woodrow Wilson's inauguration a bit. The day before his inauguration, the first major national march for suffrage took place on March 3rd, 1913. The Capitol was a buzz with people planning to attend the inauguration. When Woodrow Wilson and his wife Ellen arrived in the nation's capital, he sort of remarked, well, where is everybody? Thinking there would be more people there to greet him. Well, all of those other people were looking at this parade. You have 5,000 suffragettes who marched along Pennsylvania Avenue. The procession was meticulously planned and was full of symbolism. Women were organized into different state delegations or they marched. 
based on their professions or wearing school colors. Many of the spectators began to attack the women participating in the march. It got so violent that U.S. Army troops had to intervene so that the march could continue. Over 100 women had to be hospitalized for their injuries. The next day in his inaugural address, Wilson stated the following, and this is a direct quote from that speech. Our duty is to cleanse, to reconsider, to restore, to correct the evil without impairing the good, to purify and humanize every process of our common life without weakening or sentimentalizing it. There has been something crude and heartless and unfeeling in our haste to succeed and be great. He talks of the working class and industrialization and the need to improve the working conditions and lives of the working class. There is talk of a tariff and the economy. So there is this desire to improve, or the word he uses, restore American society. Wilson gets right to work. There were no inaugural balls as they traditionally had and still have. He felt them inappropriate. You know, the saying goes, every party has a pooper. That's why we invited Wilson. Now, again, hindsight is always 2020. We know what is coming down the pipe for Wilson. He didn't. Domestically, there is a ton happening during his presidency. In our Progressive Era podcasts, we talked about a number of them. We're going to talk about some of the major things that occurred during his presidency. Globally, foreign policy-wise, the world is a powder keg. You have the Mexican Revolution, World War I, the Russian Revolution. All will steer his presidency in directions he could not have imagined it going in. Wilson quickly set up his cabinet, which is a group of advisors, to lead the various federal departments. William Jennings Bryan was his secretary of state. Yes, that William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president three times and lost. But the two men would come to odds with each other over the practice of unrestricted submarine warfare, and Bryan would end up resigning in 1915. His first secretary of war would also resign over differences between him and the president over military preparedness and the United States policy of neutrality. His third attorney general was a man by the name of A. Mitchell Palmer. And when we talk about the Palmer raids, we will talk about him a bit more. Segregation of federal departments was also practiced during his presidency. His postmaster general, a man by the name of Albert Burleson, requested to segregate the railway mail service at a cabinet meeting. He called out the sharing of glasses bathrooms and towels as being, quote, problematic. In addition, the Department of Treasury and Post Office Departments installed screens to separate workspaces, lunchrooms, and even had separate bathrooms. When Wilson allowed for this to happen, other federal agencies began adopting similar practices. Those first two agencies had the highest number of employees of color than other federal agencies. These changes drastically altered the integration within federal agencies since the Reconstruction era began. 
There is also an addition of a photograph requirement with federal job applications. When leaders of the Black community spoke out against these segregationist policy, Wilson stated, and this is a direct quote, segregation is not humiliating, but a benefit and ought to be so regarded by you gentlemen, end quote. His views on race are evident if you look at many of his writings. For example, when speaking about Chinese and Japanese immigrants in the United States, he says the following, and this is a quote, in the matter of Chinese and Japanese coolie immigration, I stand for the national policy of exclusion. We cannot make a homogenous population out of people who do not blend with the Caucasian race. He goes on to say in the same writing, Oriental coolism will give us another race problem to solve. And surely we have had our lesson, end quote. Today, we are joined by Emily Kilgore and Andrew Phillips from the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Museum and Library. One of the things that people will point to about Woodrow Wilson as being one of his greatest achievements is the Federal Reserve. Do you think that that is the case? Woodrow Wilson had many major achievements as president, many of them occurring in the first four years of office. In 1913, one of Woodrow Wilson's first major acts as president was to sign the Federal Reserve Act. This had been a culmination of three years of discussion to develop a federal banking system. This idea would continue throughout his presidency on government control of funds, as well as interest rates for loan systems. It would also manage income taxes to pay for the roads, schools, and more, which with the turn of the century were needed to be in place with all the new industry that was built. Woodrow Wilson did not believe in monopolies of big businesses, and this system would help provide the groundwork for many loan programs for farmers and transportation organizations such as railroads. The Federal Reserve System also set up banks around the country to help manage and maintain all of these loans, which would also set the stage for how many of these government programs ran during World War I. I do want to talk about the Federal Reserve Act a bit more. After two separate financial panics where the federal government either had to turn to wealthy financiers or Wall Street to prevent an economic collapse, discussion over the creation of a central bank begins. A national monetary commission had been created years earlier and studied the current system. They evaluated banking laws and currency. They traveled to a number of European cities to see what they were doing there. They held hearings. Ultimately, the commission called for the creation of a National Reserve Association. The committees in the legislative branch would get involved and make changes to the proposed plan. Gotta love those committees. The central bank would be different from the first and second national banks in that the government would not have a stake. But Wilson felt strongly about there being government oversight. So the Federal Reserve Board was also created, which would be made up of presidential appointees. Bankers also needed a voice. So a Federal Advisory Council was created. This council would be a 12-person council, and members would be appointed by regional banks, and they would meet with the Federal Reserve Board. The act created the Federal Reserve System. Sometimes you might hear it referred to as the Fed or simply the Federal Reserve. It consists of 12 regional Federal Reserve banks, one for each district. You can easily Google a map 
of the districts and see how it's broken up. People sometimes hear the Fed in the news, but they don't always fully understand what it means or how it directly impacts them. So we did a podcast on the history of money in the United States. And in addition to the map, if you look at that map and then you look at any piece of currency, you might see a letter and a number. So if it was, let's say, um, 12, that would refer to San Francisco. If it was one, it would, reserve, it, would, it would be for Boston. And there's a whole map of these that you can go and you can look up and they, and they kind of control a region. So there are different color codes within those maps where you can see which branch goes where. Um, you know, funny stuff in the movies, like in uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo yes. DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, you know, he was, he was stealing from these banks by writing bad checks. And he would be putting onto the the check. It was going to a different federal bank, and they were very. It was very hard to kind of catch him. Um, in addition to that, the Fed really controls the interest rate. So if you hear the Fed raised rates like they have been of late, that's because of inflation. So they'll raise rates in times of inflation, which has different impacts on um, everything else as far as banking and loans and interest rates. And they would lower rates in time. You know, when when we had COVID, they lowered rates. When we had the financial crisis, they lowered rates. Whenever they lower rates, the stock market goes up. Whenever they raise rates, the stock market goes down. It's just it's a, a inverse relationship there. It's because of the value of money and other investments that people take it out of equities and they put it into other things. But the Fed really c- controls quite a bit. I mean, everything in regard to monetary policy. Mm-hmm. We should, we can probably do a whole podcast on just the Fed. Oh, yeah, completely. So Woodrow Wilson, he doesn't just stop there. He also sets out to reform big business. The Clayton Antitrust Act was passed to work against trusts and monopolies more than the Sherman Antitrust Act was able to. The Clayton Antitrust Act prevented mergers or acquisitions that caused unfair business practices. This time, they went a step further and they created the FTC as well. The FTC stands for the Federal Trade Commission, and it was created on September 26, 1914, to act as a bit of a watchdog for big business. They would investigate and prevent unfair business practices. The FTC's mission is to protect consumers and to promote competition. The need for the FTC grew out of holes in previous laws, such as the Sherman Antitrust Act and even the Clayton Act. The FTC set very specific terms for what could and what could not be done. The FTC protects consumers, investors, and businesses from things like monopolies, mergers of companies that would create monopolies, price fixing, deceptive advertising, and bid rigging. Now, I want to talk about bid rigging a bit. Oftentimes, let's say when there is a major construction project of you know, awarding government contracts, companies will make a bid for a, con- for a project. They will submit a price of what they charge to complete that said project. Companies who work together to ensure they get the bid or the contract purposefully submitting a higher bid sometimes, the winner would be selected beforehand. With bid rigging, 
the average taxpayer is hurt because they end up footing the bill and perhaps even overpaying for a construction project. So what does the FTC do today? Well, they ensure antitrust laws are being enforced. For example, in 2011, when AT&T wanted to purchase T-Mobile for $39 billion, that merger was nixed by the FTC. The merger of the two biggest phone and internet providers could have created a monopoly over the industry and potentially have hurt the average consumer. We hear about all of these different scams, either through email or by phone. You're the winner of a sweepstakes. Companies asking for personal information or a bank account number or just pay the taxes and all this money is yours free and clear. This can and should be reported to the FTC. The FTC also polices the internet. Always remember, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. The FTC works to make sure children under the age of 13 are safe online. And of course, parents and guardians should be monitoring online use of young children. There are privacy rules that must be adhered to with different websites or apps. Oftentimes, they require a parent or guardian's permission or to be notified what information is being collected and how it is being used. This is done through something called COPPA, C-O-P-P-A, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Now, what do most children do online? Well, they're on different apps. They're gaming. They're on TikTok. They're on Snapchat. They're on YouTube. Please be mindful and be careful of utilizing the internet. Once you put something out there, it is there. Anybody can grab your information, your image, your video. There are hearings in Congress about these platforms and you know whether or not they're adhering to COPPA guidelines. There are discussions about if the current laws need to be amended or changed to further protect children online. These are great discussion points for your students or young children. Be careful what you post online. This goes for adults too. I cringe sometimes at the information people give out online. Stop answering questions like, what was your first job, your pet's name, or you know, your favorite teacher? Unless I was your fa- favorite teacher, and then go ahead and talk me up all you want. Just don't make me one of your passwords. Yeah, and then people wonder why they get hacked, right? Exactly, exactly. I don't know how they knew my mother's name. I don't know how they knew my first pet's name. <laughs> yeah, who, who would have known? The Revenue Act of 1913, this lowered the average tariff rates from 40% to 26%. An individual's income was taxed at a rate of 1% for people who owned more than $3,000 per year. It didn't affect many American citizens. Only about 3% of the population fell into that category when it was first passed. Over time, more and more people would pay income taxes. Gotta love income taxes. A separate provision established a corporate tax of 1%, superseding the previous tax we discussed in an earlier podcast that had only applied to corporations with net incomes um, greater than $5,000 per year. The Bureau of Internal Revenue was also created. The Office of the Commissioner of Internal Revenue was created in 1862, when taxes were needed to help fund the Civil War. With the passage of the 16th Amendment in 1913 that graduated income tax, 
came the need for a personal income tax division and correspondence unit under the Bureau of Internal Revenue. This agency is responsible for collecting most of the revenue needed to fund the federal government. There is a need for the government to collect funds in order to operate, and there is a need for someone to figure out who owes what and to collect it. Just to give you an idea of the roles this agency has taken on over the years, during World War I, they helped to educate the public about the new tax and to promote paying taxes as being patriotic. During Prohibition, it was the Bureau of Internal Revenue that enforced prohibition laws. The Bureau would get a complete overhaul in 1953 by President Truman and becomes known as the Internal Revenue Service, otherwise known as the IRS. And talking about... <laughs> and talking about big, big business, we have to talk about the Child Labor Act. By 1900, you have roughly 2 million children in the workforce, many of whom worked in factories or mines in terrible and dangerous working conditions. These children needed to work in order to help their families make ends meet. During the progressive era, child labor was one of the many issues activists sought to change. The 1916 Keating-Owen Act was the first step to help bring an end to child labor. The law banned the sale of any product made by children below a certain age. 14 for factories and 16 for mines were the minimum age. The law lacked the power to outright ban child labor, but they did have the power to regulate interstate trade. The law also stipulated that children couldn't work at night or for more than eight hours during the day. The Supreme Court found the law unconstitutional. Imagine that law unconstitutional in 1918, but they reversed their decision in 1941. Child labor laws were not passed easily in the United States. Another important labor law passed during his presidency was the Adamson Act. A 1916 railroad worker strike of almost 400,000 workers led this act to be passed. Workers wanted an eight-hour workday and better, fair, better and fair wages. Railroad owners refused and the federal government feared a nationwide railroad strike. The law established an eight-hour workday and overtime pay for railroad workers. Railroad companies fought the law, but the Supreme Court upheld it and owners had to adhere to the stipulations. Woodrow Wilson also sought to help farmers. The Smith-Lever Act of 1914 provided access to education for farmers on new agricultural techniques. Farm advocacy groups pushed for this for a while. Without access to these new techniques, how could farmers across the nation continue to sustain food production especially with the growing demand for American products overseas. This will become especially important with the outbreak of World War I in Europe. The Federal Farm Loan Act of 1916 created a farm loan board. The purpose was to increase the amount of loans available to farmers. The need for this law came from a study started by President Teddy Roosevelt. The study concluded that one of the biggest challenges farming families faced was access to credit, and this law helped to alleviate that. When it comes to Woodrow Wilson, there is a lot of information. We touted a number of pieces of legislation passed during his presidency that, by all accounts, helped many people and the country. 
We also discussed some aspects of Wilson's presidency and his own beliefs on race and the education of women that paint a very different picture of him. Woodrow Wilson's likeness was even considered for Mount Rushmore years later when it was being built. When he left office, he was incredibly popular. We will discuss his foreign policy and the events that occurred globally that influenced history and his presidency. Join us for our next episode when we continue our discussion of Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, this is a good place to stop. We, you know, we would like to keep these things short, but great job as usual, Gina. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.